financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, what strange, enormous, and deadly killers lurk beneath the ocean waves? The Pearl was a 150-foot schooner with crew. They saw something enormous moving along just beneath the surface, and they thought it was a sea serpent at first, and then the one guy said, no, 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 that, that's a squid or a kraken or whatever he was calling it. And they were going to shoot at it, and the guy warned them, you shouldn't do that because you might anger it. It's what they did. They opened fire on the thing with their rifles, and they angered it and this squid starts getting peppered with bullets or musket balls whatever they are and it attacks the pearl c60 evo delivers the miracle molecule ess60 it's pure carbon 60. why not love your body and share c60 evo with those you love ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. I'm so excited to have writer extraordinaire Max Hawthorne back on the program. He's the author of the fantastic Kronos Rising series of books, and he's back with a work of nonfiction called Monsters and Marine Mysteries. Hey, Max, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. Great to talk to you again. How are you? I am fantastic, Rich. Thanks for having me back on. Congratulations, Monsters and Marine Mysteries. That's like a bestseller, right? 
It's my first number one bestseller for its category, and uh, it's the number one new release for both paleontology and marine biology, believe it or not. All right, so before we, we dive into that, no pun intended, or maybe intended, <laughs> let's just back up for people that may not, there might be one or two on the planet not familiar with your series, Chronos Rising. What do we call this? Is it paleofiction? Is that the name of the genre? Well, that's what an author I used to know had kind of thrown that out there as a, um, you know, of a subgenre. I mean, technically, they're sci-fi thrillers, uh, so, you know, like Jurassic Park and things like that. You're dealing with science fiction, but you have a lot of action and suspense. Arguably, you could even say they were horror novels. I mean, cause Jurassic Park is technically a horror movie, if you think about it. But, right. uh, you know, paleofiction is sort of like a, a subgenre, but sci-fi thrillers to be, you know, generalized. For people, again, not familiar, the series, uh, you've got this this creature, Kronos, which is what, a plesiosaur, or what is it? The the first novel was centered around the notion of a giant prehistoric marine predator called a, a plesiosaur. Uh, one actually I designed for the book called Kronosaurus Imperator, uh, and it's basically a, a whale-sized marine reptile. Sort of looks like a, if you picture an immense crocodile. I mean, really immense, but uh, with a short tail and four large flippers in place of short legs. So very fast-moving, apex predator-type deal. You know, a lot of huge teeth, very powerful jaws, unpleasant. Not something you'd want to be in the water with. Right, and the idea is that it's terrorizing coastal villages and so forth. But you went to great lengths to, with the backstory, to make it kind of plausible rather than, you know, how do you take this creature that may have existed 65 million years ago and bring it up to the, the mm -hmm. present time? So explain the, the backstory to how this creature survived the cataclysmic asteroid collision with Earth and so forth. Uh, well, I wanted to come up with a... Uh what's called plausible deniability or uh, more importantly uh, achieving a suspension of disbelief with the readers if you look at the genre going back all the way to the 50s you've had every possible explanation for how prehistoric life has existed to the present going back i mean the lost world you know a plateau uh, skull island for example isolated island in the I think Indian Ocean if I'm not mistaken uh, we've had creatures frozen in ice we've had creatures lurking in the bottom of the ocean abysses and everything in between I wanted something that was feasible where people would think wow that could really happen and that would make the story that much more interesting and terrifying to consider uh, so most people know that 65 to 66 million years ago an immense asteroid, estimates are as much as nine miles across, giant chunk of iron and iridium uh, slammed into the planet at 40 or 50,000 miles an hour and ended the, the domain of the primary dinosaurs, meaning everything except birds, we'll say. And all these animals were wiped out by the impact and or the following cataclysms that came with it. I mean, we're talking hell on Earth. The, the crater was 130 or 100 and, uh, different estimates, but immense and it did everything from creating thousand meter tall tsunamis that swept across most of the oceans of the world to setting off volcanoes and earthquakes worldwide there was a a cloud of liquid metal from it that went into the atmosphere and wiped out entire continents by melting and burning everything in its path acid rain and then eventually when all this stuff died down there was uh the sun was blocked out for several months by what's called an impact winter sort of like a nuclear winter and the planet froze so very few creatures could survive this type of you know cataclysm and so what i did was uh i invented a um an island caldera off the coast of cuba a uh for people that don't know what a caldera is it's basically uh, an ancient volcano that erupted many many eons ago and it has lost the entire two-thirds or more of the cone we'll call it so all that's left is a bowl-shaped impression so i had this island off the coast of cuba which even during the cretaceous was already a caldera and when the asteroid hits i had a mating chase going on with a female pliosaur and a bunch of her suitors chasing around out there the males obviously vying for the option to mate and as the asteroid hits hundreds of miles away 
the resultant tidal wave sweeps up and you know, miles and miles of, of ocean with them and it impacts on and swamps this caldera and then of course keeps going and it turns the caldera into a giant eight mile wide fishbowl effectively so you've got an entire ecosystem that in seconds has been deposited in this gigantic quote fishbowl the fishbowl theory is uh, for want of a better term and they're imprisoned in there and the advantage of that is of course you have food for these creatures you have you know an entire food web set up and you can even use geothermal heating through the semi-extinct volcano to have you know to keep that aquarium warm during the impact winter during ice ages things of that nature fast forward 65 66 million years fantastic timing and a tremor causes a split to appear in the side of the caldera which opens up temporarily freeing some of the inhabitants into the sea and including in this is the sole surviving pliosaur that's left you know the their numbers have risen and fallen of late inside the caldera so it's out there in the wild and it is doing now what any other apex predator will do when released into a new environment it's exploring and it's setting up hunting territory for itself of course the animal being uh it has most animals have what's what called instinctive memory and this creature is now exploring its domain and the structure the topography of the earth the seafloor etc is different from what what it's expecting back then during the Cretaceous there was most of North America was split by a, a huge um, shallow inland sea which of course is no longer gone the coastline is different etc so the animal is exploring its territory and it sets up establishes a hunting territory for itself which is off the coast of Florida unfortunately for us and it begins to prey on things that it encounters sharks whales fishing boats things of that nature it has no natural enemies it's not afraid of people or anything and unfortunately the bigger problem that now as this creature slowly begins to claim victim after victim and encounters our protagonist of the story the hero and the heroine um, eventually the biggest fear now is if this animal is somehow able to multiply even the hatchlings are already five feet long or something there's not much out there to keep it in check inside the caldera there were 20-foot predatory fish there were 30-foot predatory squid. There were a lot of other creatures in there that the adults would prey on, but the young ones could be fed upon by these creatures. In our oceans, shark finning has obviously taken its toll. We've wiped out 90 or 95% of most of the whales in terms of population. So this animal could conceivably multiply over the years and into plague proportions and literally retake two-thirds of the planet. So that's kind of like the behind-the-scenes message that's going on and that people are faced with when this thing's being confronted. Right. Uh, it's a terrific uh, backstory. I mean, it's it's very believable. Um, so we, I think there were six, I guess including the new one, which is a prologue, right? Which is Diablo, the aforementioned Caldera. There are six now mm -hmm. in the Kronos Rising series. Is that it? Uh, well, let's see. There's six right now. Um, there is another book in the series that is going to be coming out, um, possibly by the end of this year, God willing. Uh, so that's going to be another full-length novel. There are currently one, two, three, four full novels. There is Cronus Rising, and then there is the Cronus Rising Kraken Trilogy, which each one of which was like a five or 600 page book. So they had to be broken up into three huge novels, but those take place 30 years after Cronus rising after the first book without giving spoilers. Right. Um, Diablo Cronus rising Diablo, which is the name of the Caldera Diablo Caldera uh, is the prologue sort of like a prequel that's takes place. You know, if people want to know what happens immediately before the eruption and as things escape, it's, it's really interesting. It's, I don't want to say it's like skull Island, but um, it does have, um, tones of that let's say um and then there is a a novelette called Cronus Rising Plague which takes place between Cronus Rising and the Kraken books ties in things and also explores the origins of this the pathogens because one of the biggest risks that would mankind could face would be that if there was an isolated type of bacteria or something um in this caldera let's say that was contained within prehistoric life and it affects people mammals other creatures like that then 
this animal could spread disease which could do even more damage than its jaws and this disease could spread across land uh, nothing would be safe so that's kind of going on in the Kraken books along with everything else that is occurring but the new novel uh, is takes place years after the end of the Kraken books and continues uh, sort of where things left off All I don't right. want to you know, ruin anything for people. So now we have, uh, I mean, these are obviously, these are works of fiction, but now we have nonfiction. This is uh, Monsters and Marine Mysteries, which is chock full of, you know, eyewitness accounts. You've you've met with these individuals that have seen giant sea turtles and, and uh, the like, and mm-hmm. uh, some, I don't know how many photographs are in there, over 100, I think, right? Yeah, it's 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 a good sized book. I think the book is pushing four hundred pages, and it's got oodles of everything from charts to photos to artistic. I mean, in, interpretations of things. But I collected a lot. I mean, I, I worked with dozens and dozens of people, like you said, people who had sightings um, firsthand. Uh, one person was attacked by one of these creatures. Uh, it, it was incredible because a lot of people. A lot of these things have been forgotten. I mean, some of this stuff took place in the like late 60s, mid-70s and stuff, and it's been forgotten. People didn't even know that the witnesses, any of them, were still alive. And, I mean, you know, this one guy, was he was a teenager at the time when him and his father were uh, attacked by this monster. And I'm not, when I say a monster, that's a pretty fitting description. That was the, um, what are they, the Southside Sea Monster, which is erroneously... Uh, what do they call it? There's something else. This um, something sea serpent or something like that. Something serpent. Oh, Cape Sable Serpent. I think is like what it's listed under in the cryptozoology. And nobody, some some newsman just like invented that. But that's not what the people in that community were calling it. They were calling it the Southside Sea Monster, and they were the ones that were attacked by it. A lot of people. I mean, this thing over a week attacked three different boats and tried to make meals out of the, the fishermen. Where's where's Cape Sable? I mean, I have heard of Sable Island, which is near Nova Scotia. Where's Cape yeah, Sable? it's that area. You're, okay. you're exactly in there. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, it was, so, but anyway, so I, I, I digress, I, I apologize. But There's yeah, no I digressing. Really got... There's no digressing here. <laughs> it's all good. Well, it was a thrill because, I mean, our oceans are immense. One of the things I, I addressed in the book, the sheer volume of water that's out there. And technically, I believe only 5% of the sea floor has been mapped. And that does include the average 11,000 plus feet of water above that. So, I mean, 95, 99, whatever percent of our oceans are unexplored. And you can bet that there are things out there that just because we haven't seen them or most people haven't seen them doesn't mean they're not there i've seen some stuff myself right we'll talk about that land that's not supposed to exist right right so let me just come back to the the uh the sable sure. cape sable mm-hmm. so this creature that was attacking these these boats like sable island if i remember correctly is is pretty much uninhabited except for wild like horses or miniature horses or something um so what happened off sable island so the there was this all I'm even going to pull, pull up the book because Southside Sea Monster all this stuff took place right after the Bicentennial 1976 uh, it happened on three days July 5th which was a Monday July 7th a Wednesday obviously and July 9th and what happened is the fishermen there they go out and they fish for cod mm-hmm. okay um Cape Sable Island. Yeah, there are some fishermen there. At least there were back then. I'm pretty sure there still are. And so there was a Canadian fisherman named Eisner Penny. Him and his son were the first people to encounter something. And they were out there in their boat. And I, the great thing about talking to eyewitnesses is a lot of the facts that are in the historical account were changed or exaggerated or just wrong. So I was able to set the record straight. For example, everybody thinks that these things happen at night, and they didn't. They happened early in the morning. The sun was out, bright and sunny. Um, you know, they, they talk about the, sh- the mist, the fog you couldn't see. There was a little mist on the water, but the visibility was like 100 feet. So, you know, it, it, just the setting. And as a person who uh, has been on the water hundreds and hundreds of times and fishes extensively, etc., I know to ask a lot of questions that people might not think of which 
really pertain to these particular sightings. For example, I found out that, uh, and I'm assuming that Mr. Penny and his son, God rest their souls, uh, use the same techniques because the witness that I, you know, Rodney that I spoke to, you know, made me, it gave me the impression they all did the same stuff. So they were basically put out an anchor and had a long anchor line. So they'd be drifting back with the tide. And then once they were set up, they were hand lining bait down there to catch cod. And they'd have two or three hooks with these live large bait fish on. They'd lower down by hand and they'd, you know, set the hook and they'd be pulling in cod, sometimes double or even triple headers. And they would fill their boats with cod and that's how they were making their living. So this thing, this creature, the Southside Sea Monster, uh, was apparently attracted to the action, the smell of fish, fish blood, the struggling in the water, just like a shark would. Right. You know, I mean, it's that kind of thing. So Penny and his son were there, and all of a sudden, they saw something behind the boat, and then they got attacked. And this thing came at them, and what they saw protruding from the water was like a three-foot-wide, just dark object sticking up out of the water. And it had these large, like eight-inch, I believe it was, glittering red eyes on it. So it was this hideous, lumpish thing sticking up out of the water. Rodney told me when they saw the same thing, they thought it was just an ocean sunfish, and that was its fin at first. Okay, So the pennies were attacked by this creature. It came up. It tried to make a meal out of them. They had to uh, run for their lives, and they came back. And Oh, and the guy, I think, I'm not recalling which of these it happened with, but I believe it was the first one. It was pursuing them, and they couldn't get away from it. Their boat, well, I had the boat speed. All the details are listed in the book, but how many knots they could go, et cetera. And this thing pursued the boat for, like, I think it was a mile or two, maybe more. And it was a very large creature. This creature is like 60 feet long and massive. Wow. It's the size of, a, a, like, a, a right whale. Okay? It's not a little thing. Bigger than the boat. Much bigger. And it chased them, and they had to go into the shallows um, in order for it to veer off. Because its speed was matching their maximum velocity. They could not get away from it. So that was the only reason why they managed to escape. And then the pennies were, of course, abused when they came in and told the story about being attacked by an immense sea creature. Okay, Everybody laughed at them. Rodney Ross, who was the sole surviving witness, and his father laughed at them. Everybody laughed at them. It's all funny until it tries to eat you, you know? Right, right. So two days later, Rodney and his dad are out there, and they're doing the same thing. They've got their boat out there. They're anchored up. And, uh, I, I mean, I got the color of the hulls, everything, the whole enchilada, okay, just to see if there was – it was interesting because all the boats actually were the same greenish color with the hull. They weren't white like a lot of more modern boats are. Right, right. Remember, this is 1976. And I believe that had a bearing on it because the animal, for, from its perspective underwater – it probably viewed the boat as being similar to the rest of the sea. It didn't notice it at first until it got close. And that appears to be like a, an ongoing theme. So now what happens is Rodney and his dad are out there and they're fishing and they're hauling in fish after fish after fish and they're having a great time. And it's early in the morning. I mean, they were out, like it was still dark out practically in the beginning, and all, but it's, it's bright now. And they start, before they see it, they start hearing this strange noise. And... Rodney told me it reminded him of like wind whistling through the rigging on a schooner, like on a sailing mm. boat or something like that. It had this kind of like this. Nice sound, sound effect. Nicely done. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sideline sometimes is that. Uh, <laughs> I'm suddenly, I'm there, you know? No, you, yeah. you put me right there. But um, so what happened is, is they heard it before they saw it. Okay. And all of a sudden then the fishing died. Like, there were no fish all of a sudden. You know, the fish obviously sensed this thing approaching or whatever, and they got out of Dodge. And then they see it, they see the same thing that the pennies saw. And it's uh, this, Rodney described this large knob-like mass sticking up several feet out of the water. Like I said, initially his dad said, oh, it's just an ocean sunfish. But it wasn't. And it was, I don't know how far behind him it was. It's in the book, but 50, 60, 100 feet, I forget. But it's back off to one side, and it veers and it's back off the other side and it's sweeping back and forth like it's exploring and I don't know if it was looking for the source of the fish 
or if it was swallowing whole schools because its jaws appeared to be designed to do something like that. But uh, it started doing that. And then as they got closer, Rodney was looking and he saw the eyes and he described the eyes in, in great detail. They were like a seahorse eyes. You know, they weren't in sockets. They were kind of protruded and they were like a hideous reddish mm. color. And this periscope-like mass, about a yard wide, is just moving around. And then all of a sudden it turned, and he said it looked right at him. Like he, their eyes met. And then it started coming toward the boat at, at speed, you know, like toward them. And he warned his dad, who rushed up to the front and, you know, tried to put the boat in gear. And as the thing approached them, it was coming right at the transom, this section the top of its head we'll call it 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 was almost like cone shaped or something was very small compared to the rest of it and as it got closer it rose in the water column and its head came up 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 and it got wider and wider and wider and by the time it was right behind the boat and almost on top of them its head was 15 feet across oh my lord and over 12 feet of that was mouth my best description and, and my personal suspicion on this is it might have at one point have been a goosefish or something like that. A goosefish? Or fish. if it was even from – yeah, it's, it's a large predatory fish that lays on the bottom and it, uh, it has a gigantic like oval-shaped mouth lined with sharp teeth. And it sometimes they – they call them anglerfish. It will like lure fish. Oh, in yes. And, Ungler, you know, anglerfish I've seen. Them. Right, but they're not that big. Yeah. Well, they get like goose fish are sizable. They can be like five feet long, but you know nothing like this. No. And as it come, it it opens up its jaws and it goes to inhale the boat. I mean, it was literally, according to Rodney, could have its jaws. He was looking up at its the top of it inside of its mouth, over his head, way over his head. He said it could have gr- swallowed him and the entire back, like one third or half of their boat in its jaws. That's how large the mouth was. He described the teeth, the fangs, the inside. I mean, everything. He was looking right at it. And just when he was about to, like, you know, his dad gunned it, and the the boat lurched forward, and the thing struck, and it missed. And he said it must have just nicked them or something because they felt and heard, like, a thump like that as it dove. As its jaws came down, it it crashed. It submerged, you know. He saw, like, its back, its dorsal. You know, it didn't have a dorsal fin, but the, the, it had a fish-like tail. He said the tail was like an immense tarpon, like that type of thing. Right, right. My so, word. I can't but, uh, imagine so, there's something like that out there. I mean, I, I, I think I told you this before. My parents mm-hmm. drove like, I don't know, 1,500 miles to uh, from where we are, uh, Ontario, to Prince Edward Island so we could camp in Cavendish uh, National Park and dip our toe in the Atlantic. And on the way out there, I decided to read Jaws. So 1,500 miles later, do you think I would set <laughs> even a toe in the Atlantic? Like, your books must just <laughs> destroy the tourist industry. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, there was a running joke that, uh, like, you know, companies that uh, produce, like, bathing suits and stuff like that were really taking a hit each time one of the Cronus Rising books came out you know people were like you know sitting on the sand and stuff I've been told by people they would not go in the water after reading some of these my books you know but this isn't fiction I mean this no. you know and it is just like so then what happens is is the thing's not done yet okay oh. so it they they pulled when they jetted forward, they had enough anchor line up there that they didn't just take off, which is another mistake in the historical account, by the way. It's, they said that they ran out of there and stuff. They didn't. They had whatever it is, how many hundreds of yards of anchor line out. And they ran up on the line to avoid this thing. And then they, they wait, waited there, you know, keeping it like in, in neutral. And when the thing didn't return, they let the boat drift back to the same exact spot where they were. That's brave. And then they stood there, the two of them, side by side. And Rodney said it for an hour. I said, an hour? He goes, well, it seemed like an hour. I don't know. I mean, I was terrified. You know, he was like, I forget how old, like 18 or 19 maybe, something like that. Like, I don't have everything in front of me. But um, And then he turned to his dad. He said, Dad, what was that? And his father goes, I have no idea. And then they're sitting there, standing there, and they start hearing the sound again, you know, of the thing 
I guess it must have been the wind hitting the top of its head as it moves along. You know, that kind of like... <laughs> and then they decided they weren't going to chance their luck again and they got out of Dodge. Okay. Two days later, another guy... Oh, wait, wait. I'm sorry. So when they pulled out, they encountered Eisner Penny in his boat uh, on their way back. Right. And they pulled up to him and they said to him, you wouldn't believe what we just saw and what just came after us. And he was like, you don't have to tell me. I've seen it up close and personal. He goes, oh, wait for me. He goes, I'm pulling up anchor. I'm going with you. So they all, both boats took off. And then two days later, I, I don't have the names in front of me, but a third angler was attacked by this creature. It seemed like every other day it was going after people. And it seemed to have learned from its past mistakes because before it would come at them, they saw like the top of the head and then it saw the boat and then it charged the boat and, and emerged. The third time, it didn't do that. It literally just surfaced and tried to eat the guy. More of my conversation with Max Hawthorne when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. Combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I use Life Change Tea from Get the Tea every morning and it's made such a huge difference in my life. Buy a one-year supply of Super Strength Life Change Tea and start feeling rejuvenated right now. Life Change Tea is not the same tea you buy in a store off the shelf. Life Change Tea from Get The Tea has eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. The colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've listed here. 
do your research and start your day with a cool, refreshing 16-ounce glass of Super Strength Life Change Tea. It's non-GMO, organic, caffeine-free, and again, not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. So go on, get your tea from GetTheTea.com. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Max Hawthorne is here and he's sharing some pretty scary and true stories of encounters with leviathans of the deep. Are you a hockey fan? No, okay. I, I when I was six. Sure. Well, there's a method to my madness. I ask you that because the newest entry into the National Hockey League next season, a new franchise, the Seattle Kraken. Yes. And no, I'm very by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as I'm, if it was my doing. <laughs> well, but you know, there's uh, maybe some cross promotional possibilities there. But I mean, I my wife is Greek, so I'm familiar with the the Kraken from. Greek mythology, the creation of Poseidon, you know, release the Kraken. Uh, but the Kraken is actually a, a squid, right? A giant squid. Well, if you look at the historical, I'm, I'm sorry, not to, to digress, you said I could, but yeah, it's where it really gets around because I was actually approached in December by the Washington Post that did an interview with me and they wanted to discuss the Kraken. Ah. So if you Google like Washington Post and Max Hawthorne, you'll, you'll see my contribution to their article. Fantastic. Yeah, it was a political piece, but I, I'm not political. <laughs> so I made a point and everything, but they used a few excerpts from you know the, discuss, the stuff that was discussed, et cetera, and all that. It was nice. I mean, it's, it's a big paper. I you know, enjoyed sure. being in it and stuff. But yeah, they, they were looking for the expert on the Kraken, and they found me. There you so, go. So, But I didn't. I wasn't aware that, the, that that's what a Kraken was. I thought it was simply the mythical, you know, the creation of Poseidon. But it's And in fact, that's the cover of the book, right? Is that like a woodcut? Or a print of this giant squid. Uh, that's ancient. That's from the 1800s or something like that. Yeah, it's an historical woodcut of an immense squid or octopus attacking a sailing ship, which, by the way, is in the book and has happened and stuff. But uh, I mean, the actual origin of the word kraken or kraken it comes from the German, and it's it's um, kraken for, is singular and krake is um, plural, and it means uh, octopus basically. So. Uh, in my Kraken novels, the titular beast is a species of immense octopi. Um, but, you know, it's been said it, it could have been a giant squid, you know, based on people's encounters with these things and stuff that where the legend grows, where it comes from. But there are many encounters people have had with enormous octopuses also, which one of which is in, in the book. Is that I interviewed the- somebody. Oh, I, I want to come back to that. Octopus, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, I love to eat them uh, grilled with a nice bottle of white wine, but they, they are so intelligent. I, I feel almost guilty about eating them, except they, they're, they are so alien to me. Mm-hmm. And I have seen videos of them where they can actually leap out of the water, scamper across land, uh, you know, from mm-hmm. one tidal pool to the next, and um, mm-hmm. but the intelligence is incredible. But I I, I want to come back to the um, the story in the book because Squid? there's there's okay. w- there's one about the is the, the pearl this this sailing vessel the pearl schooner yes the schooner mm-hmm. yeah tell me about that. Um, once again, not having all my notes in front of me, but it, it took place I believe during the 1800s, and the schooner the pearl was a 150 foot schooner uh, with crew, and they were. They saw something on the surface. Uh, they weren't the only one. Yeah, there was another uh, like sailing ship nearby that witnessed this attack also, so it definitely happened. And they saw something enormous moving along just beneath the surface, some sort of brownish, slimy-looking thing, etc. And they thought it was a sea serpent at first, and then the one guy said, no, 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 that's, the, uh, that's a squid or a kraken or whatever he was calling it. And they were going to shoot at it, and the guy warned them, you shouldn't do that because you might you know, anger it, etc. But they did. They opened fire on the thing with their, their rifles, and they angered it. And the thing is that 
one of my personal theories and the evidence in the book that I collected backs it up is that squid, whether it's Architeuthis, colossal squid, or an unknown species, um, can get much, much bigger than people think, and that the largest ones actively hunt and prey on whales. There is evidence to back this up. In fact, I've collected some new evidence that's not even in the book that really backs it up. But uh, so, I mean, this squid, like a sailing vessel, would be much more easily confused to be a whale, confused with a whale, I'm sorry, by an animal, than a loud diesel-powered vessel with props and or outboards or something to that effect. You know, something that's sitting out there that's, you know, creaking or just floating along as, as a mass stinks of fish or Lord knows what else, etc., could be misconstrued by an animal to be a whale. So this, this squid starts getting peppered with, you know, bullets or musket balls, whatever they are, and it attacks the pearl. And it comes at it at speed, and as it's moving towards the boat at speed, the, the captain of the other vessel saw what he called a skirt behind it, which would have been its arms mm. trailing as it jetted because they moved backwards. And then as it got close, it apparently turned around and it came right at the pearl, arms first, which is what squid do when they attack prey or even when they're mating, etc. And it slammed into the schooner. Boom. It wrapped its tentacles around the masts and the hull and it started to pull the schooner over and the squid was bigger than the the pearl just as we're clear on that and that's without the long shooting tentacles the feeding tentacles that come out just the arms the mantle the body was bigger than this ship which was 150 feet long or so oh my word and yeah it pulls the the pearl right over Drowns, kills you know, a good chunk of the crew. You know, the, I put the uh, the witness reports and stuff, the official stuff that was in there from the inquiry is in the book and stuff. And yeah, it sank a, a decent sized sailing ship, like it was nothing. And there's been multiple incidents in there that I documented where this has happened. So, oh, scary stuff. Oh man, I mean, for you, it's it's scarier almost than well, Cronus is is fiction. This is real. Mm-hmm. Um, are you are you afraid I really to go in the water? Grab by a squid that size. Let me tell you. No, no. Are you afraid to go? Like one of the first things I do whenever I go anywhere, uh, you know, in the ocean, if it's Greece or the Dominican Republic, that's the first thing. You know, when I land someplace, two questions. Mm-hmm. Number one, can I can I turn right on a red light here? And number two is, when was the last time a shark was seen in this vicinity? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it turns out. Thanks to you, sharks are probably the least of my worries. But are you afraid? <laughs> are you afraid to go swimming anywhere? Um, I'm not keen on swimming in the ocean, to be frank. I mean, I've at least not in the surf, etc. I've done the scuba, snuba, you know, snorkeling, that type of stuff. You know, I don't. Uh, I my concern is like undertoes and then you know, submerged rocks and things like that, getting dashed against something. You know, etc. More open water, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with. Although I do keep an eye out. You know, last time I was in Hawaii, um, actually not not the last time, the first time, uh, we were out doing snorkeling and uh, swimming with green sea turtles, which was incredible. They're so cat-like in their behaviors. Really? And stuff. Yeah, they, 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 you know, cats clean their faces with their paws and stuff. Yes. The sea turtles do the same thing. I watched them sit on the bottom and, and clean their faces and stuff with their flippers and stuff. And it's it's really something. And then one of them tried playing tag with me. And they, we were told it's a $10,000 fine if you touch one. And this little turtle, he was only like 50 pounds, is trying to touch me, play with me. And I'm, I'm backing away from him, screaming, don't touch me. I can't <laughs> afford it. You know, like 10000 bucks. Like, no. But um, yeah, so when I was there, I looked down and I saw this huge fish under us. I think it was a giant trevally. I mean, it was bigger than me, let's put it that way. But it wasn't like, you know, a great white shark or anything like that. But I was like, that's interesting. All right, you know, keeping an eye on you. You know, I don't like surprises. You know, in the ocean, you're like on the top. You're like a topwater lure in my book. You know, right, right. Sitting there. Is that like a giant grouper? 
Um, a trevally? No, it's a it's a large predatory fish, very popular in Hawaii for as a game fish, etc., in other islands. Um, these are the ones that you see the video where they jump out of the water and take pelicans and, and wow. seagulls out of the air. Wow. Yeah, and they're they're hyper carnivorous and very fast. They literally jump out of the water, snatch a flying bird, and then take it under. Would they would they go after a a small child if they were? I suppose if it was big enough, a big enough one, yeah, that could happen. I mean, a grouper would be more likely to do that because they proportionally they have a larger mouth, and uh, you know that would be. Uh, who is it? There was a. I was fishing Cape May, and I was with the this charter captain. And he was telling me about how from Australia and out there they have Goliaths and they also have these fish called potato cod which is another type of very very large grouper and they he was saying how this some one area the parents when they go out there with their children they're wading in the water because of these fish they carry the child high up in their arms hugged to them and they're looking around constantly I guess because there have been incidents where a very large grouper either took somebody's child or tried to Wow! You know? Wow! You you um you well, told the me rule of thumb for them if it. I'm sorry. No no no. Go ahead. The rule of thumb is that, and I've said this to people before, is that if it fits in the thing's mouth, it's going to try and eat it. So it's like when everybody somebody says to me, "Oh yeah, this big grouper came up to me and he was so curious," <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, "He's not curious, buddy. He's measuring." Exactly. You know, Will that look, fit in my mouth? <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's literally what they do. Yeah. You know, and if they think you're going to fit, they they will try. You're coming up. And they to, got teeth. Oh, do they? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, I know. Well, depending on how things play out up here, because we're months behind you in terms of COVID, uh, mm-hmm. we're still in lockdown. But you're planning on coming up to Canada. I understand. To uh, to uh, revisit this happened in the late sixties. Was it Gary Lamada that saw this yes. giant, like yes. gigantic turtle? Um, and you're going to meet with is it Earl who was in the boat mm-hmm. with him? Yeah, Earl and I are going to meet up. We have a charter guy, and uh, the plan is to go up there and revisit the spot where they saw this a thirty eight foot turtle. Um, and uh, you know, get some footage and some underwater footage, etc. It's it's going to be incredibly exciting. I mean, like exhilarating. I might even. I'm thinking I'm going to bring a shark rod with me, and uh, catch you know live line a salmon or something if I'm allowed to, because uh, I'm sure that's what the thing was there eating. You know, and where there's one, there could be another. You right. know, I mean, I'm sure they're extremely rare, etc. But you know, the odds of me hooking up with a turtle the size of a minibus aren't great. But uh, you know. It'd be fun to try. So this is what 1969. Gary yes. Lamada and Earl mm-hmm. out in a boat, and they and they see, and their boat is what about 38 feet long? Uh, That's there's how... actually two boats. Okay. See, this is another time when there's like an error in terms of the historical accounts, which uh, once again, I mean, it's always good to, to get to the bottom of things and set the record straight. Um, uh, you know, the earlier accounts it said like uh, made it seem like Earl worked for Gary and was like the mate on his boat, and that's not what happened at all. What happened is that Gary and Earl were friends. They had two individual boats. I think both boats were like 38 feet long. Uh, everything's in the book, the names of the boats, the models, the, the whole enchilada. But uh, And they would go out very early off this particular point and head out there to fish. And I believe they were catching salmon, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Gary was ahead of Earl by a mile or something like that. Um, and Gary had... Uh, was like uh, Boys with Toys had gotten recently a Super 8 um, movie camera. You know, like that was then like the the smartphone of its day or something like right. that. Right, we used to call it a brownie. My dad, I think, my dad had yeah. it. Yeah. So what happened is, is like, and this was very fortuitous actually because Gary was really into filming everything and anything. In fact, when they, people, years later they came across the footage, you know, they were going through tons and tons of old, you know, rolls of film and stuff, family stuff when they finally found this thing. But um, so Earl all of a sudden on the, the radio, he starts, Gary starts calling him all excited. He's like, he's like, there's a sea monster here. And he's laughing. He's like, no, no, I'm telling you, there's a sea monster here. Get up here now, 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 now. And he was filming it. Okay. Um, by the time Earl got there, the turtle had submerged. So his view of it, he like Gary told me, he goes, look, it's right down there. And their boats were like 
X number of yards apart. And down, they look down, there's a big rock outcropping that comes up, so the water's obviously more shallow under there, under the hull. And lying on top of this ledge is this ginormous, quote, shellless turtle, meaning it was sort of like a leatherback, but more slim. And, you know, like like Earl told me, it, it looked to him almost initially like a pale grayish, almost whitish sea lion, but 38 feet long. Wow. And they were able to measure it because it was the same length as their boats. So they had a great reference in terms of how big this thing was. And they're watching it sitting there, you know, doing its thing and stuff. And then Earl moved off a little bit. And then Gary was like waiting for it, you know, with the camera and everything to get better footage of it. And then it whew, took off and fast, he said. He's, he's like, yeah, it's gone. And before Earl had gotten there, Gary had gotten a little bit of footage of this thing frolicking on the surface and or I don't know if it was herding fish or playing or whatever it was. But I was able to take um, a frame or two of the footage and, you, you know, you couldn't see anything. It was like this blob. You know, like you could see, like it was like it was bluish or grayish, very dark. The film was very old, very degraded. But you see, like this, you could tell it's water, and you see something sort of bobbing up in in the water, but you can't really tell what it is. And so I took the frame a frame or two, and I started enhancing them. I, I lightened them, I increased contrast and stuff. You know, just what what the computer can do and stuff. There wasn't anything added or anything like that. Meaning, you know, it wasn't like photoshopped. And next thing I know. I lighten it to a certain point, and bam, I'm staring at the head and neck of some sort of turtle, you know? And it wasn't like a leatherback. Its face was more like a, more like a loggerhead sort of or something. And the, the, the illustrations are in the book. I mean, the enhanced versions, the originals, all this stuff is all in there for people. Um, you know, with renderings, and there's an artist, you know, in drawing that matches perfectly with the frame and stuff to really, you know, so people can see it. But, I mean, you could see the eyes, you can see the, the brow ridges above the eyes. You can see the, the flap of skin under the eyes. You can see the beak, the recessed lower jaw. And you can even see the folds of skin on the neck and stuff. And the scary thing is, is that this turtle, just the head and neck were eight feet long. Oh, my Lord. So imagine the size of this animal. But what really made me a little apprehensive for these guys was that the turtle, you can see that it has turned and it's looking at Gary as he's filming it. Like its head is like twisted, like the neck is turned. Like it's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. Dinner. Know, like that. Dinner. And I asked her, I said, when you saw this thing, were you scared? He goes, oh, I was a little scared looking at it. I'm like, hope this thing does not get mad at us or anything like that. Because it was big enough to sink their boat. Oh, my. Either boat. Wow. You know, it could have come up and boom. But, uh, and um, Gary said it was a, what do you say, a capable of terrific speed was his exact description. So, um, I mean, you know, this is obviously not an immortal animal. It's not one of a kind, but it definitely exists because there is film of it. And I proved that it was what he said. It was some sort of immense turtle by tweaking a couple of frames and you can see that it really exists, you know. So, really something. (laughs) To say the least. Monsters and Marine Mysteries and uh, available at Amazon.com. Can they also get it from chronosrising.com yeah if people go to my website maxhawthorne.com or chronosrising.com um, you go to the book section there and yeah you can order that book and whatever else you need um, there's free excerpts uh, if you go on Amazon and look up Monsters and Marine Mysteries there's a look inside feature so you can see it I, I mean whatever people read whatever format that works for them but I'm a huge fan of the Kindle version of Monsters and Marine Mysteries because Everything is referenced in there, meaning that, you know, I mean, this is a scientific book. It's not boring. It's not like, oh, the tedium, I can't take it, stuff like that. Uh, I don't write like, you know, the rest of the academia or anything like that. No kidding. Maybe maybe that's why they don't (laughs) like me, okay? But if you look at the reviews, the reviews bear out to what I'm saying. You know, the story is told with excitement, with, with, you know, there's some thrill factor to it, and my warped sense of humor at times also but uh so when you you know i do have references to everything in there you know i don't just make up facts figures numbers or anything like that so when i'm talking about formulas for how large sharks are based on shark bites or i'm talking about you know the body temperatures of this or that or whatever it is you know 
and the, the with the Kindle, the links are active. You can just and you go right to it. You know, so Fantastic. it makes your life that much easier, and you can blow up the images as big as you want to see them in much better definition than you will in a paperback. So, but you know, to each his own. I'm just saying is is that the Kindle has in this area. The Kindle excels because it lets you do so much more than you could do with a physical copy. And if I could add one more tip to people that are interested in, uh, in, in purchasing monsters and marine mysteries, read it before you go to the cottage. Not while you're there. <laughs> Not while you're there. <laughs> oh God. You know what's the thing about that turtle, though, Rich, is that it wasn't just that one incident. I have a timeline. Where I and I, I only, I only used like six or eight incidents, but going back to the 1800s, the same animal was seen encountered here, 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 here. There was one where one was attacked by orcas, killer whales, mm -hmm. like a big pot of killer whales right. tried to take one down. Whether they succeeded or not, I don't know, but um, that's in there. The most recent one was only like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. A couple, a woman was uh, being circled by a smaller one. And when I say smaller, a 15-foot turtle is still a big turtle. Is that in Pensacola? But not sure. Oh. It's, uh, I think that one, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm so No, no, that's prepared. okay. Only, no, no, no. Let me see if I can because you, because you did. I think you did mention a couple of incidents in Pensacola. So we have like Pensacola in the southeast in the Atlantic, and then we have... Uh, Gary LaMotta and Earl up in uh, you know Vancouver Island, the Pacific Northwest. These things are everywhere. It sounds like. Yeah, the, oh, there is one historical sighting that includes the Pensacola one, and the reason for that is there is a famous um, sighting that took place in Pensacola that where five like teenagers, if I'm not mistaken, were attacked by some sort of creature. And here it is, Pensacola Sea Monster. And this is in, gosh, I think it was 1962. So this is seven years prior to that. And these boys were out on a small inflatable raft from Pensacola. And they ended up caught in like a freak storm. And then it was like a lot of fog and stuff. And they were like kind of stuck out there. And then they described something that looked like a telephone pole with eyes coming up out of the water. And they were trying to swim for it. And it started grabbing members of the, the, the boys and pulling them under and that's according to the sole survivor oh uh, I wow. got all the like the details in there and um, three of the boys I mean four of the boys were killed um, three of them their bodies were never recovered and one was body washed ashore they believe they figured out who it was and it, it was listed as being as quote a drowning but uh, according to the sole survivor this thing was it looked to be feeding on his friends and the reason I, I believe that this is the same type of animal is it exhibited the same behavior that Gary saw and that's been in many other sightings sea turtles are curious creatures to begin with this one has a proportionally longer neck than most turtles almost like a snake neck turtle hmm. but it sounds like it you know they were out of the water in their raft and this thing stuck its head and neck up out of the water and then it came after them. And I believe it is entirely possible that one of these turtles was actually feeding on people. So, but yum, that's yum. not the, the most, I'm sorry. No, no, I'm just, I'm just trying to soak it all in and uh, maintain my composure. 2002, Rhode Island. This mm. is the one. A woman, and this, this makes you wonder. I mean, what they saw was definitely some sort of turtle. It sounds sort of like an immense leatherback, except it was too big, and it was more a little more serpentine in build from the description, etc. But uh, it, this thing was apparently carnivorous because the a woman was out there swimming, and then all of a sudden this huge creature was circling her and stuck its head up out of the water. The head was the size of a basketball with these big googly eyes and stuff and hissing at her. It was being very aggressive. She was screaming for help. Her fiancé went out there, grabbed her, tossed her to safety, put himself between her and this animal, and then it started circling him. He eventually got away from it, but it was described as like a 15-foot-long thing. And the interesting part is, is that one of their friends, and this is there's actual news footage where they interviewed the people that were attacked by this, etc., and one of their friends, another guy on the beach there, had gotten a bad cut in his calf and a fresh injury, and he was rinsing his bleeding wound in the water. Oh, great idea. 
<laughs> and this is what drew this thing in. It says here, let's see, here, he bled for 90 minutes with him rinsing the open room repeatedly in the water. I said, why he did this? I have no <laughs> idea. Okay, But this animal sounds like a predator because it was drawn by the smell of blood. And it probably assumed that the girl and or her fiancé were wounded, etc. It was looking for a victim. They were honestly too large to be eaten. But it was, maybe it was looking to, figuring they might have had something it could have intimidated them into giving up like a prey item or something like that or maybe it was looking for something small enough that it could feed on it i don't know and I, i'll tell you another thing though when you said pensacola though back to florida where those boys were killed um i spoke to a witness just like a week or two ago and i wish i'd spoken to him before the book was finished but and i have i have to get these i did a video interview with him and i believe it was in there early 90s and he and his father were fishing on a pier down in Pensacola the by the, uh, the military base down there and they saw a large version of, of like what what Gary saw and the reason they saw it is there was a man near them next to them like you know arms length away who was catching small sharks with a like a he had a shark rod with steel cable for line and he would lower it from the pier, a chunk of, like, I think he was using, like, raw steak or something like that, a raw bloody fish, like tuna or something like that, uh, on a shark hook. And he was pulling up five- and six-foot sharks. And I don't know if he was keeping them or letting them go. I believe he was letting them go. But uh, I'd have to, you know, check my notes. But the guy would crank up these, you know, struggling, flailing, you know, five- or six-foot sharks that could weigh, I'm going to say, 70 or 100 pounds on mm -hmm. a guess, bring him up to the railing. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, he did take the hook out, and then he pushed him back in the water. So this thing, this turtle, came up and eventually ate like one of the sharks, apparently, that, that this guy was catching because it had his hook, his bait, in its mouth. Mm -hmm. And it looked up at them. They saw the head, the neck, and like 20 feet of it, like its body, its back. It was big, dark, greenish, blackish almost or something. And then it turned, and it took off like a missile, and the guy's line was like screaming and then it went dead and he reeled it in and the line was like bitten through he said like steel line wow so yeah that, that's like i mean a, a big enough turtle's beak i would imagine could do that they're out Maybe there they're, they're, they're out there or, yeah so and that's but that's the same area where these boys were uh you know attacked so you know it, it's you put it all together i mean and the, the uh, not to digress even further, but why stop now? <laughs> but I've put out a popular theory, although it's unpopular for some people, that the you know so-called super predator that was in all those documentaries, you know, the one with Shark Alpha off the Bremer Canyon in Australia, right? Um, there, you had you know you had a nine-foot great white shark that was tagged, and then something chased it down and ate it, and then excreted the tag eight days later, etc. And when I looked at all the data, body temperature ranges, digestive time, you know, the, the movement of the tracker, which indicated an air-breathing predator after the shark was eaten and stuff, all this stuff, everything points to something like a leatherback turtle. But of course, we know that a leatherback turtle could never eat a nine-foot great white. If anything, the leatherback might be in danger of being attacked by the shark, okay? But a mega turtle like this that was related, let's say, to a leatherback distantly, etc., would have the same capacity, but be big enough, fast enough to do this. And the Pensacola incident proves that they eat sharks. Wow. See, because that's what it was feeding on. It yeah, was attracted yeah. to the blood and it, yep. was, it grabbed the shark like five or six feet long and scarfed it down and got hooked in the process. So, you know, the super predator, in my opinion, and I've spoken to people, including people that do the documentaries and stuff, in my opinion, I believe that it's a 35 to 40 foot you know, Piscivorous, which means fish-eating turtle. It can swim fast. It's carnivorous. You know, and I mean, all these things put together, it seems to strongly suggest that we have an undocumented species of mega turtle out there, which conceivably could be the largest living reptile in the world. Wow! I'll never watch Franklin the Turtle again. I'll tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, people, forewarned, forearmed. Uh, Monsters and Marine Mysteries, along with the uh, fantastic Chronos Rising series, chronosrising.com, Max Hawthorne, 
com. Max, always a pleasure, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again on Coast to Coast in the not-so-distant future. Fantastic, Richard. I am honored, honestly. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back with a few words about an upcoming episode. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android, available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Coming up next time, the 1948 Roswell incident and the birth of the State of Israel. Is there a connection? Documentary filmmaker Ali Siadatan connects the birth of modern-day UFO phenomena and UFO crashes to a cosmic struggle and to a prophetic timing that may very well relate to events in the Middle East and even to the second coming of Christ. How do the pieces of the puzzle fit together? Listen in and find out. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.